Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In the fifth canto of Purgatorio, Dante encounters his enemy, the sinner Buonconte da Montefeltro. Buonconte led the Ghibelline army, Dante's rival faction, and died in the Battle of Campalbino in 1289. Upon his death, the devil promptly appeared, ready and eager to take his soul into the infernal abyss. However, the devil is turned away by an angel. Somehow, the Ghibelline leader is saved from the inferno at the final moment of his life because he sheds just one little teardrop, una lacrimetta. The dusky hue earrings are created with hand-blown glass to pay homage to this one little teardrop, the tear of salvation, and celebrate the beauty in those moments of sadness which always seem to make us stronger. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most exciting artists in the world right now, the great Cassie Namoda. Born in Maputo in Mozambique and currently based near Springs, Long Island, Cassie is a painter and performance artist who explores the intricacies of social dynamics and mixed cultural and racial identity. Capturing scenes of everyday life, from mundane moments to life-changing events, Namoda paints a vibrant and nuanced portrait of post-colonial Mozambique within an increasingly globalised world. Capturing scenes which have the appearance of film stills, these fleeting snapshots sit within much larger narratives and range from bustling, faceless crowds to close-up individual portraits, with her characters often locking eyes with the viewer as though they are breaking the fourth wall. When confronted with one, they fill you with joy, with their vibrant colours and scenes full of love and appreciation, with the artist once remarking, if you're surrounded by love and community, you can make do with very little. Following solo exhibitions across the globe at Francois Gebeli in LA, Nina Johnson Gallery in Miami, Cassie's first UK solo show was held at Pippi Holdsworth here in London, and she has exhibited widely at the Caribbean Cultural Centre, African Diaspora Institute in New York, the Library Street Collective in Detroit, and many, many more. And I had the great pleasure and honour of including Cassie in a recent exhibition I curated at Timothy Taylor Gallery titled Dwelling as the Light. 
Named one of the rising stars of 2020 by Elephant magazine and commissioned to paint a cover for the January issue of Vogue Italia, Cassie's work is also held in the collection of the Perez Art Museum in Miami. Cassie Nemoda, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Katie, thank you so much to have me. Wow, that was such a wonderful introduction. <laughs> and you told it so straight and it's so beautiful. It's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you about my practice, where I'm at currently and past work that I've explored, I felt at Pippi Show. It felt almost like a new chapter in a way. And I think we're going into these unprecedented times. So these conversations feel more crucial than ever. Totally. I mean, I've been so excited for this conversation for so long because I was lucky enough to witness that show in the flesh called Little is Enough for Those in Love. And it was just this room of burst in joy and colour, but also human emotion that you'd walk into. And I remember it being kind of blisteringly cold outside on like a January day. It would get dark at 3pm and you'd walk inside this gallery space and you would just feel <laughs> completely transported. I mean, just to start off, I'd love for you to just describe the kind of work that was on view there and the work that you're making at the moment. Yeah, I feel the work that I presented at Pippi's in London. There's something that people say, they have the notion about UK or it's dreary and gloomy and I don't know if that was some <laughs> of it where I just was like I'm going to bring even more vitality yeah because when I was there for the three days prior to the opening when there were collectors coming to visit it's almost like they were coming in with their big coats and instantly like their face lit up and I was like wow yeah. if I'm not doing anything else at least I'm doing that and that really feels fulfilling to me and then obviously all the other things like the appreciation of the application of paint or composition or narrative that just fills the bucket even more. Yeah, I think it's difficult for your face not to light up in that environment. But tell us about the title, Little is Enough for Those in Love. I had started making Little is Enough for Those in Love, which is a Swahili proverb. And I tend to resonate with these proverbial expressions, maybe because I think in some respects that painting is in a way a religious form. So when I think about paintings, it sort of comes through me. So it's typically I'll think of a title and then it starts to birth all these children, you know, and these characters. Yeah, I love that. And then it becomes really quite intuitive. But it's like the weirdest thing because to be around me while I'm making a show is <laughs> I'm a little bit of a space cadet. I'm like nervous <laughs> and I'm stressed. And anyone yeah. who's worked yeah. with me, I always have work ready a month in advance. Amazing. I'm like one of those <laughs> artists. It's like the idea of approaching a deadline. I start to like, you know, so it's yeah. like, I just like, the thing is so intuitive and I'm like a month yeah. before I'm like it's done you know I hope to get it out of the studio right away otherwise I'll start touching it up again yeah. but Pippi show I had just moved from LA out to Long Island my boyfriend built a home here and I wanted to try it out it was like there's something about LA that I felt was really serving for me and it had its moment and it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to close the chapter but there's something about adhering to your life and what you had been exposed to and accustomed to. And I think there's sort of a free will and a beauty in my life that I'm open to sort of 
manifest different forms of my practice in different places. So I decided to move out to Long Island. And so it was September and September is probably the most special time out here. And if anyone knows anything about Long Island, there's a very special light that comes out late summer, early autumn. And it's just the most ethereal waking. And when the sun sets, it's also very divine and I had a month to myself no one was around and I had my very young puppy at that time and every morning we'd get up at like <laughs> you know 5 6 a.m we'd be already at the bay at the crack of sunrise and we just walk and it was really beautiful and all those colors seeped into me in this very spiritual way. And then I would just go straight to the studio right after, which was a barn. <laughs> and even though the context of the work is more close to home in terms of it being inspired by yeah. stories in East Africa, Mozambique, or sort of nuances, the flesh was really something that was birthed from my almost meditative state of spending time in nature. So the essence of the work became a very ancestral, rural kind of inkling that we all have inside of ourselves that maybe we're not always listening to because of the mundanity of society wanting more. Yeah, And that's when I decided to take the painting, the title painting of also the exhibition, Little is Enough for Those in Love. And that was the true essence of the work. And I stopped halfway and I went to Oaxaca for a month. And my practice, it really moves. So when I was at this residency, I rented some abandoned building half an hour away from the residency. And I realized in Oaxaca, There is no acrylic painters because the weather does not serve it. So I was lucky enough to bring retarder to keep a sort of wetness to the acrylic. So I was getting these hard paint strokes. And then there's something super special about being honest to the moment and what you're dealing with. And I think that's really important as a painter because we get so used to the four walls. So then I'm just going to think of a new technique. And it's just like really fast sort of visceral kind of pointillist style work where I'm just layering on top of layering and sort of adding in the retardant and adding in the zinc whites and just an amalgamation of paint that sort of rendered itself to the moment and with that coming back to Long Island and seeing this very loose brush strokes and have the earlier work and then Seeing the duality of adhering to a struggle or a challenge. And it became the sort of like static versus energetic approach that when you walked into the room, it was kind of weird at Pippi's. And when we were installing the show, we were like, whoa, it's kind of strange how the energy of the application of the paint really gives you two different feelings or energetic bodies and so it was like those who needed that quiet moment resonated with the september work and those who needed the lifeblood went towards the post oaxaca trip so then i'm titled the second painting little is enough for those in love too 
which is that big dance scene. Yeah, I love that. So that's a little background with that exhibition and then fast forward. And I think people needed that to sort of bear with what was ahead, which we went into a global pandemic. And yeah. I had to tell myself that proverb over and over again, because there was a lot of frenzy. You know, when fear comes into place, it's like society tends to go towards every man for themselves. But then you might snap out of that and realize that it's okay to have less because there's something about manifesting a sort of equality for everyone. So I was very grateful that that show happened at the time that it happened because I think those who were aware of that show had, you know, I mean, art should inspire. So if I can do anything, I hope that that had inspired people to assisted ideas and notions around life or living during this time or that time. You know, I don't know if we're still or not still in it or not in it. Totally. And how has that time influenced what you're making right now? And now with Goodman, I'm making To Live Long is to See Much, which is a cumulative feelings, ideas of everything I had been exploring in the work. And that sort of, I made these kind of smaller scale paintings that showed up at Nina Johnson's gallery in Miami that opened up, I guess, like month ago some or sometime i don't i don't know what time's going actually may it opened up in may yeah, yeah and it's called dog meat cat meat god knows what meat <laughs> which is sometimes we just gotta say that it's like we don't have to know everything we don't have to have answers for everything and we should be okay with that yeah but i think society right now has leaned towards wanting answers for everything and then maybe listening is a lost art yeah. so i felt that could we just sit with paintings could we just sit with work without having to contextualize it so i thought maybe in some humorous way that would give a notion to <laughs> life as we know it because I think things are gonna keep getting weirder for yeah. better for worse you know <laughs> yeah I think so too <laughs> but what I loved about seeing your work in January as well and then it just really sitting with me throughout the whole of these last three months and I've constantly revisited them which is why I really want to speak to you as well because I think on just a personal level for me, you know, when I look at them, I see family, gathering, memories, relationships, joyous mm -hmm. colour, but also pain as well mm -hmm. and, and kind of human suffering. But mm -hmm. it's OK. And I'm thinking of this beautiful work of yours called Cyclone mm -hmm. I Die and a Mother's mm -hmm. Embrace with a Beloved Son, One Late Night in Town, And that is what this time is about. It. I mean, whatever movement you're looking in is about holding on to people and saying it's fine to be anxious. I feel like your work has these such mm -hmm. kind of dualities where they present such joy and then you really get to them and there's a tear and it's like well why is that and then and then for me I just feel totally sucked into that I mean tell me about presenting these everyday scenes that do have these dualities I think it's something that we all can relate to we all are persons of familial bonds whether or not we respect it or not and I think so often we are forgetting the bigger picture 
And that can be a real danger for sort of society in the sense that we're glamorizing the wrong things. So when we talk about this duality, I think I'm always like, is this going to constantly be the theme in my work or is it going to be the heart of the work? But I do believe (laughs) there's a deep resonance. You can't have joy without pain and you can't have suffering without joy like the two go hand in hand if you're not experiencing both things you're not living a really authentic life and it doesn't mean don't work on finding balance in your life so I think that is a notion that we can all respect because for the most part we all know it because we have experienced it it's like last week was bad but this week was good and I'm really happy this week was good (laughs) you know yeah, And I always bring it back to the African story or the Luciferne story in which I'm exploring even more deeply. But I'm just observing society and like I had grown up on the African continent and like what I had noticed because I had gone to like I'd lived in cities, but then also visit rural parts. And it's like the picture that Western media always likes to play on doesn't even have to be the continent of Africa. It could be anywhere, but it's that yeah. there's deep misery and this is you know in order to not have this kind of deep misery you need things but it's like then you go there and it's like oh wow they made a really interesting toy out of a really beautiful wire and these forms of expression and a musicality and awareness of body and a deep connection to ancestral land and a deep familial bond it's almost like from the moment you were born your title is the next of kin. You are a member of society, but then it's just human emotion. So when you're looking at a painting like the Cyclone Diets, I thought about all the mothers that woke up in the middle of the night and needed to find safety with their child. But then in that moment of finding safety, there's a sort of purity in it and the room is rightly lit. And the boy is in this really bright, beautiful blue. And there's something we can go to in in terms of it's a moment of prayer or like you're covered in a white light or something. Totally. I mean, it's almost a kind of like very familiar image as well. It's the mother and child, isn't it? We've seen it so many times before, but it's this very human version of it. You know, you don't have to necessarily be, uh, you know, Christ. We all have that feeling in very different shapes and forms as well. But I'm so interested to know as well about your upbringing, you know, living across so many different countries and continents and how being exposed to so many different cultures really actually influenced the work that you're making right now. Well, so we were born in Maputo, my siblings and I. We lived there some years and then we moved on to Indonesia and then Kenya. And oh my gosh. Quite some time. <laughs> wow. And then to Haiti. Dominican Republic and then settled in New York for some years and then went on to West Africa to Benin. Oh my gosh. It's like you can see that in the work. It's like I've had people say, I don't really know who's behind the painting. Yeah. Like who's the hand? Yeah. It's because of all the context of all the different places and neighborhoods and people and cultures I had been in as a child where my instinct was always to adapt and then after Benin we went on to Uganda but deep down inside knowing that my mother's not an anglophone African she's a lusophone African so eventually I end up during my high school years going 
starting to revisit Mozambique and then I had settled there in my 20s and that's what I was saying in terms of I had this sort of New York City connection or the American view which New York City is a very extreme city for a, a sort of American taste because I feel like it really is a combination of many different things and then having these very rural experiences and then settling in Maputo and what Maputo had for me there what was waiting there was this very cosmopolitan European lifestyle mixed with a sensuality that Africans have so there's this warmness and I was very inspired by sort of the architecture of the city and how that was closely relating to the feeling that the Portuguese had wanted to plant in in terms of a lifestyle and identity yeah. for Maputo. And so you had these high-rise buildings and there was this influence of socialist history and there was something that felt so different and it really reoccupied my mind in what living... So not only is my family from there and I had family there, there was like I noticed the cultural habits and I think a really nice way to observe what resonates with you if you're maybe wanting to move from the city you're in yeah. is going to a place and noticing cultural habits. Yeah. So on Sundays, like a Pippi show, I had Coast of the Soul on Sunday evening and it's a girl running along a bay yes. with people sitting up against the structure overlooking the water and there's warm spirit that exudes from that and then I think about the music and the salt in the air so it's really like we have this term in Portuguese called saudade which is a nostalgia or a longing and I think that in some ways that shows up and I think it resonates with people that haven't even been there because it's not about knowing Maputo yeah. it's about applying that to your own sensory of what longing for a place and time might be like Totally. And the fact that, you know, the, the faces are faceless as well. It, it kind of becomes universal in that respect. And just that work, it has so much joy in the little girl with her mm. heart balloon. I mentioned in the introduction, you know, there is this cinematic part of your work. You know, like I said, it does feel like these kind of fleeting film stills. I mean, there's so much narrative. I mean, can you talk about the kind of cinematic quality of your work? Because I know that's actually how you got into art in the first place. Yeah. I studied film in school briefly, so I ended up working in that world. But when I was living in the States and then later on when I was going to the university for cinematography, I remember like not seeing anyone respect the magic of just a still image in a cinematic form. And then yeah. I get introduced to these African filmmakers and I had always loved African films. So I would go when I was living in Benin to like Fes Paco and Burkina Faso. There's something I really love about the way you can transcend ideas and notions through film yeah. and just be open to that world. Yeah. And I was like, can you do that in painting? Yeah. So for me, that was very appealing. But then... I'm also, because I'm a twin, there's something I really love about solitude. Oh my god! And painting is a very quiet, solitary form. So in some respects, like the big gathering of bodies to make a body of work, which is film, maybe seem less attractive to me. It's also very male-dominant, you know? And... 
So, yeah, so the works like Us- of Usman Semben and Dr. Vilma Betty, just sometimes like watching their films, it's like it's not about the language. It's more about what they're giving you in a compositional form and how that takes you to this different place. And, and it's so sophisticated. It's almost like watching a sort of performance dance or this kind of thing and I thought about that within painting so in terms of research my research is usually reading a book reading a couple of books now I have Wesley my research assistant he's a student and we go back and forth and we'll just have these long two-hour phone calls and I'll share my books and he'll share his books and so now the research has become a little more concrete rather than in my head but I paint in spurts and I'll paint really like long, heavy days and then I'll stop and then I'll watch cinema. I think about memories a lot. Nostalgia like is a big part of the practice, depending on what it is that I'm trying to say. So that is why I feel like there's sort of this air of cinema because I'm really interested in how does one put you directly into a painting rather than the painting being an object to serve your interest like a transportation or something totally I mean it's so first of all interesting that hearing that you're a twin as well because I mean you you have a recurring subject which is the conjoined twins and I think you know oh, the, yes. the power of your yes. work as well is not only is it feel cinematic but you are putting these characters in you know it ultimately for me kind of functions as like a story you know I'm looking at mm-hmm. these works and I'm mm-hmm. almost trying to explore these narratives and some of them are so emotional and when you you know you see these work of the conjoined twins and you see them as little girls in blue dresses and then you see them grown up I mean tell me about the kind of characters that you create in your works do you think about that much yeah I do you know like there's always a sort of father figure and he shows up in many different forms the most popular is like the father figure sitting on a chair with two sons sometimes it's one son and there'll be a spirit animal. And that is a symbolism for the idea like sacrifice receives blessings. And also with the twins, it's this idea of duality. But then also, I just think there's something interesting about a connected body yeah. with the multiple gazes. Yeah. And then there's Maria. Yeah. You had shown at the Timothy Taylor She is a character with many different parallels and ideas, and she is more of a metaphor in the respect of a free will, if you will. So she's sort of like this oppressed character that's sort of functioning on her own right. In a lot of the work, she's in a bar, and that can have more of a historical narrative because Mozambique, during the freedom struggle to become an independent country, with a sort of socialist bones, the idea was that perhaps women would either fight in the ghetto or the guerrilla war, or they would plant kind of secret farms. And then you had these kind of free women, usually from up north, that were not very interested in fight. So it was maybe like they're like peace and love type of thing, but they were also like very currency motivated and interested in a sort of newer world and so I like think that's really fascinating to sort of 
play around with these mixed emotions because there's like a freedom to it but then there's also like to get to the free or maybe that's connected to a currency or a newer exposure she's sort of navigating colonial post-independence so and maybe that's a metaphor for the people in general or for the country in general where I feel like in some respects they're still teetering between two worlds of like the old notions of free limo which is the presidency ruling or this China is coming in and building new buildings and it's so it's just like I think it's a sort of exploration of negotiations. Yeah, I think that's the power of painting and your painting in particular, feeling timeless, but also exploring these really current issues of where the world is or where Maputo is and what's happening right now. But I love it because every time I see you, a new show of yours or something, it's like coming back to old friends or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's fun to like connect the dots, you know, like, oh, I saw that person there. And with Pippi too, like that little is enough for those in love. There was like the conjoined twins at the bottom of the painting. And I don't know if everyone realized, but it was fun to like be there. And someone like, oh, those conjoined twins pop up. Oh my gosh, yes. But I mean, some of these works, others are, you know, celebrating this cosmopolitan life in Maputo. And, you know, it's it's like with me, with my friends just gathering in a really hot place or something by the sea. One of the works that really kind of strikes Mm -hmm. me in your work is a work called three month old lung patient and this Mm. work is so delicate I mean can you tell us about it because I think this for me is your most emotional work I think yeah I kept that work actually did you I thought (laughs) (laughs) yeah that for me is like sort of the most hardcore in terms of hitting it on the dot with Choosing the lens in which you will view a situation or a life scenario. And the three-month-old lung patient is this circular painting. And then the child or the face is abstracted by these sort of amalgamations of soft, neutral colors. And then there's a sort of soft pillow behind his head yeah and there's something really sort of vulnerable about the painting but then also healing at the same time so I'm looking to see and like I'm always curious with what people are willing to accept in terms of reality it's like some people don't want to realize that there are kids walking around the world without shoes or without dinner and I think that's important, but then also putting life into perspective is important. So that painting is about putting life into perspective and the fact that life is still given. And that's like a kind of hard concept if one is living a life ridden with privilege. It scares you or it it puts you in an uncomfortable space. So in a way, that is the truest of the true in terms of dualistic notions that one really has to pull out of themselves and make a kind of peace with it. And are these works, are they based on photographs or are they based on your imagination? I mean, can you talk a bit about imagination with your work as well? Yeah, for instance, the the three-month-old long patient, that was a found image but I didn't paint the polio bed. And then I abstracted everything, but kept the 
I'm interested in when working from photograph, recreating a world within that photograph. And I have a deep love for found images that resonate sometimes with the story that I'm telling. Yeah. Not, and then there's like the deep love for the history of painting. So I'm looking at this painting, The Dance of Life, that I have up on the wall. <laughs> and I just decided rather than painting monsterly characters to create a sort of anxiety within the application of the paint. So then there's a sort of whirlwind feeling or sort of vertigo within the work. So that is sort of pulling from a great. So I look at an Edward Monk and I'm like, okay, cool. Like that feeling that is exuding within his work is something that I'm resonating with, but I'm sort of reappropriating it for my own self. And I think that's sort of the beauty of being a painter is that those paintings that have come before you live inside of you. Yeah. There's a deep love. So there's that. And then there's the instinct behind cinematic lens and what that transpires when I'm watching film. So then I'm taking screenshots on my camera. And then there's like just the visual from my everyday. Like I see someone passing or I'm staring at something or just pure imagination. So it's really sort of a total mishmash of things. <laughs> and then also painting. My only show in New York was in East Hampton, We Killed Mangy Dog. And that was me in Sintra, Portugal. And I just read Luis Bernardo Hanwana, Mozambican author, We Killed Mangy Dog. And I just created images or paintings from the, the stories I read. I guess it all varies. <laughs> <laughs> but I love how your work, it has all these strands to it. It's completely imbued in historic painting, but it's also looking at what's happening in the West in a way and comparing that to the continent that you grew up on. But I mean, so much of your work also, you know, relates to memory and family as well. And, you know, for example, at the Fippi show, you did this incredible tea ceremony, which kind of, you know, went back to your ancestors. Can you talk a bit about ritualistic part of your work and how it kind of feeds into spirituality? as well well I think that painting for me is me living in my ancestral body in a way it's a calling and it's also a duty and I feel like that for me every time I pick up the brush it's ritual yeah it's an initiation there's a kind of possession when I'm in a sort of deep rhythmic. I just wanted to engage the space rather than activate it, engage it in a rumination process of thinking outside of the gallery space, of thinking outside of the four walls and traveling for a bit and thinking about some sort of native land and I think we can all relate to a sort of native land because we're truly not really from one place. So I had some of the guests come and scent the tea and sort of sit with that for a moment. And also it felt vulnerable in the way that it's so personal. That tea is so personal because it's really coming from my grandfather where he had grown up and like the house is still there and sort of shambles and it's really sort of 
a pure exchange. And that I think is sort of just me living in my true essence of like wanting for people to experience an exchange. It's sort of what we should be doing. And so how do you want people to feel in front of your works? What do you want them to sort of go away with? I want them to leave with whatever feels authentic to them. I want them to be present. Yeah. If you leave feeling sort of sad, that's good. I want you to feel all your feelings because for me, I'm not imploring you to come in with a notion or a projection and I'm not wanting you to leave with one. And so usually what ends up happening is with that idea, people usually all leave on the same page, <laughs> you know? And that's a good thing. It's like, I felt like with Pippi's show, people like decided to send their friend a text message or call their uncle or visit their grandma. It's like that sort of thing. And it's like one of the paintings a lot of people resonated with was long winding path with friends and family. And I was really surprised because the simplicity in that work but, you know, as soon as you entered in the room, that was the first painting that met you. It's almost like as we go along or as we go in through this show or this journey, we're sort of doing this together in this way of brotherhood and sisterhood or just friendly strangers in this thing together. And I think that that really sort of gave people some hope. I was really surprised at the amount of feedback I got on that that painting. So that's the sort of thing I want you to resonate with. It's like almost like good habits for life. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Well, Cassie, thank you so much. It's so brilliant to hear you speak about this because as an individual, I went to your show three times, but one of the times... <laughs> One of yes, the, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to come back to London. But you, know, <laughs> but, but, you know, even just being there alone, I was just so enraptured by it all. And I think that's what it is. It's like these familiarities and they take you to every place of life and every emotion. And so I just want to say thank you. But also thank you so much for this conversation because it's just incredible to hear, you know, you speak about these ideas. And as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests, if there was a female artist now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Well, backtracking, I just wanted to say life is in the details. And then going forward with this question, it's very, I think, obvious for me and I think some people who know me, but I would say Frida Kahlo, yeah. 100%. She was someone who really lived life with aesthetic pleasures and details and just a hell of a painter and just the, what her well never run dry. I think she was such a raw, raw human. Would you say anything to her? Yeah, I would say that she's a really, really good fucking painter. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Cassie. Of course. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you all so much for listening to the 31st episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the absolutely brilliant Cassie Namode. It was such an incredible insight into her beautiful work, and I will link all of her details and works in the show notes. 
This episode was sound edited by the great Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying this podcast, then I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review in Apple Podcasts as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.